I'm Jessica Duenas, and this is Bottomless to Sober, the podcast where I talk about anything and everything related to life since my transition from bottomless drinking to a sober life. Hey, everyone. In today's episode, I'm going to tell my story, kind of like my general story. And it's funny because I had started recording this earlier, and then I was abruptly interrupted. And in the spirit of me just doing this podcast as a like, just spit out whatever needs to be said and not editing. I was like, you know what? F it. I'm just going to start fresh. Um, and I will also trust that whatever I say is what is meant to be put out there into the interwebs. <laughs> you know, I've told my story so many times at this point that um, it's always interesting when I say it and to see what feels right and that that's what comes out. So again, i I just trust that whatever, whatever I share is what needs to be heard. So I'll go ahead and I will share. And of course, um, you know, the standard content warning for just about lots of things, um, stands for this episode. So there will be talks about alcohol abuse and, um, sexual abuse and things like that. So just kind of putting that difficult stuff out there. Um, I'll do my best to remember to pause and give you that heads up before I say something explicit, but just giving you that heads up. So anyway, enough rambling. Now I'll go ahead and start. So I was born in Brooklyn, New York, born and raised, and I was born to a Cuban, an Afro-Cuban father, and a Costa Rican mother. My parents had each come to the U.S. in the late 60s, very early 70s, and I was born, I was kid number eight, and I'm the youngest. Um, My parents each had had their fair share of relationships, so I was actually only raised with one sister even though she's the seventh and I'm the eighth. And so my sister, Sophia, is 11 years older than me. And then there's me. Um, And I was born February 4th, 1985. So I'm an elder millennial. Um, Just putting that out there too. I I don't hide my age. I don't care too. So just putting that out there. Anyway, so with my parents being immigrants, um, they definitely valued education, the American education system, very, very much so, um, to where it didn't, almost everything else didn't matter as long as I did well in school. And the other thing actually that they did value a lot in terms of American values, I think really is just the adoption of beauty standards, which are, I mean, and I would say, honestly, those are more European beauty standards, right? Um, I am taller. I have brown skin um, because my father was an Afro-Cuban. My hair is curly. And then I also have always been a heavier person. And so since I was little, my academics were always celebrated because I've always been really good at school. But my appearance um, has never fit that standard. And so there's always been nonstop attempts to change how I look, like stay out of the sun, go get a relaxer at the Dominican salon, go lose some weight, you know, ponte en dieta, like always, always like something about how I looked had to be changed and something was always wrong with how I looked, right? And the thing is, when you're a little kid and that's what you hear, you start to really believe that shit, right? <laughs> like, like if you're constantly told that you're fat, that you're this, that you're, all, you know, this, that, and the other, you start to really believe it and you start to see yourself as less than everyone else around you. So from a very early age, I had incredibly low self-esteem because it it just wasn't built up. And I will take this moment to pause and say, my parents did the best that they could with what they had. 
And honestly, I'm so grateful to say that I am so not pissed at them or at my mom, really, who probably perpetuated this way more than my dad, um, because I've done a lot of work to understand that folks tend to repeat what they were taught and they tend to repeat what they grew up in. And it takes a lot of work to pause and examine what the hell you grew up in and make a change. And so I'm grateful that I get to do that. But my parents, as immigrants, as struggling folks, they didn't have the opportunities that I do to stop and do serious self-reflection and like work with professionals and get help. So they grew up in those environments where they ripped people down <laughs> to pieces based off appearance. And so I definitely got ripped down quite a bit. Um, and so the other thing that I developed early on was a really complicated relationship with food um, and just tons of shame around it, right? Because like if I wanted... If something tasted good and I wanted a second serving of it, I immediately got yelled at, right? And so for me, I immediately started to associate wanting more food or like food as something to get in trouble over. So really early on, I started to learn how to hide food that I was trying to eat, sneak food in my drawers, sneak a couple dollars out of my mom's purse, aka steal money from her to go buy food and then eat it, hide it in my backpack, get to school, throw it out of my book bag so that nobody knew that I was eating all this extra food because I grew to like it, but I felt like it was this forbidden thing. And so I was always hiding it. Flash forward 15, 20 years, right? Like that's exactly what I was doing with alcohol. The second that alcohol for me became something that was bad in my mind and it made me a bad person to consume it, I started to hide it from everybody else. So anyway, backtrack to childhood. Like I said, I was academically gifted. And so by the time I got into eighth grade, I had picked up like a scholarship to go to this very elite private school on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, the Spence School, um, where again, I, I knocked it out the water. Academically, I was really on point. Um, but as I got older and became a teen, the heavier I got, right? And so even though I'm so grateful for school. And honestly, I'm so grateful for my teachers, right? Like my teachers inspired me to be an educator because when I felt like shit about myself, those men and women whose classrooms I went into made me feel whole. And I was like, you know what? Like one day I'm going to do that for someone else. And I'm going to do that for someone else's kids. And I'm going to make other people's kids feel really good because my teachers made me feel good when I felt like shit. And I'm so grateful that I got to do that as a classroom teacher for 13 years. Um, but that's the side point. Anyway, back to the story. So anyway, um, my self-esteem was really rough in high school, but academically I just soared. So by the end of high school, then I had like a full scholarship to go to Barnard College, which is a part of Columbia University. So I mean, like I had made the Ivy League, y'all. Like I literally was living and breathing my parents' American dream while at the same time feeling incredibly insecure because they still were always commenting on my appearance, you know, and how I needed to lose weight and I needed to do the, all of this. So anyway, carrying all that low self-esteem into college and onto the college campus was a perfect recipe to fall in love with alcohol because as a freshman, I was invited to someone's 18th birthday party at NYU's campus. There are these guys from the Bronx who had brought some liquor bottles down there and I was a I stayed out of trouble. I honestly, I did. I minded my business for the most part. I mean, I would get into shit sometimes, but overall I stayed out of trouble. Um, and so when I was on at this party, 
they were drinking shots. They were taking shots. And I remember, I think one of them was like Goldschlager. I don't know, whatever it had, it was nasty with gold flakes. And I'm pretty sure that's what it was called. So anyway, one of them was like, Oh, you drink ma. And I was like, I, before I could even respond, my former friend was like, no, she doesn't drink. And I felt like, you don't know that. Like, uh, uh-uh. uh, like I'm going to talk for myself. And I was like, let me get one. So I took a shot. And I remember everybody was like staring at me and I felt the nastiness and the heat go down my throat and then like light everything up like it was on fire. And I wanted to react, but people were watching me and I was like, I'm not going to react. And so, you know, as they said, I took it like a champ. So they offered me more and I was like, yeah, like, let's do this. Because once I started to feel the effects of it, right, and I felt my inhibitions go down and I felt more relaxed, suddenly it was like I was freed from feeling physically undesirable, which is something that I always felt every moment of every day. I always felt physically undesirable because it had been programmed in me since I was a little kid that I was not attractive, right? That I was not beautiful because I was fat, that I was not beautiful because my skin was too dark, that I was not beautiful because my hair was too curly. All of that had been programmed in me real hard at that point. So the alcohol made that go away. And um, it allowed me to socialize and relax a little bit around these people and relax a little bit around cute guys, right? And I was like, oh, this is good. So time passes in college and I'm doing good in school in general. My class, I'm doing good in my classes or doing well in my classes. And um, my drinking stays pretty much limited to weekends and binging and stuff like that. But then I get into a relationship with somebody um, another guy from the Bronx, nothing personal towards the Bronx, by the way, that's just, you know, I don't know. I always ended up with guys from the Bronx back in the day. And that was a really, really problematic relationship. Um, my family, again, we just didn't talk about anything. So when I got into a relationship and all the red flags were starting to like go up and, you know, shine bright in the sun, I didn't have anyone to talk to, to be like, Hey, he did this. He said, this is this okay. Am I safe? Um, and so basically like by the time we got to Thanksgiving of, you know, our, that first Thanksgiving that we were together, um, we ate at his family's house and then we came back to my dorm. And in the morning when I get up and I get on my computer, he had been on Facebook. Yes. Facebook is that old. And, um, he was logged into his account. And when I opened my computer, I can see the messages are there. And I, at that time I was so, I knew nothing about healthy relationships or anything. So of course, if you leave your messages out, I'm going to check your messages. And that's exactly what I did. I checked his messages and, um, in there, there was an exchange between him and his previous girlfriend. And clearly he had been cheating. Um, that was incredibly devastating to me because again, this was like my first real legit boyfriend and we just spent the holiday together and oh no, now you've cheated. So now like I'm heartbroken and I had zero standards for myself at that time. So when I found out that he was cheating and I threw him out, I let him back in a couple days later. Right. And it was just like, no matter what would happen with him, um, and it would, increase up to the point of like physical violence at times, I kept letting him back in because I was just so scared of being alone because I thought that I would always be alone because I had been told since I was little (laughs) that nobody's going to want me. Right. But here somebody wanted me. So it's okay if they do all this horrible shit to me because at least they want me. That was the old thinking that I used to have when I was younger. And suffice it to say that relationship finally ended 
But by the time that relationship ended, my drinking had escalated to the point that I had gotten so depressed that I wasn't going to class. And so here you had this real bright ass girl from Brooklyn in an Ivy League institution who flunked the semester and lost a scholarship. So I took that as a sign that maybe I wasn't meant to go to college. Maybe I needed to drop out. And that's exactly what I did. I went and I um, unenrolled from the school. Soon as I get back to Brooklyn and get back home to my mom's house, because I was living in the dorms, like I mentioned, my mom was like, I did not come to this country for you to drop out of school. So, you know, she basically was like, you're going to have to get the hell out if you don't go back to school. So I was like, fine, I'm going to get a day job. And I became a secretary at a law office in Staten Island. And at night, I started taking classes at Hunter College at the City University of New York. So I did that. And I actually, I got to the end. I got to graduate. And um, I applied to be a New York City teaching fellow because let's not forget, I still remembered the only adults that ever made me feel good and accepted were my teachers. And I was like, I still want to do that. I still want to help make some kids feel good. I still want to do something good in this world. So I became a teacher um, right after college. And I started, um, I was a special ed teacher in Bushwick in Brooklyn, um, really close to where like my parents had their store. And I taught at my first school for about four years and I met my ex-husband there. I also started working at the school with a bunch of other fresh out of college teachers. So everybody was fresh out of college. We were all super young. And the funny thing with alcohol, right? Like we all basically just carried our drinking habits from college into our teaching profession, but now we gave it a new name and it was happy hour. So we would go to happy hour and one day my relationship with alcohol changed. And I'm not going to say that this is the day that I became someone with alcohol use disorder. I, I, I still can never tell you when it was official because I don't think there's such a thing, right? But I had had about three drinks in an hour and one of my coworkers was like, dang, Jess, like, isn't that a lot? <laughs> and I was like, oh, that is a lot inside. That, that was like my thinking. But then my thinking spiraled to immediately jump back to when I was a kid and I was getting yelled at for eating too much food. And so that, that wave of shame, like woo, practically knocked me over. And I was like, oh snap, I've got to hide my drinking. It wasn't like, oh, snap, let me evaluate my relationship with alcohol. Like, oh, snap, maybe I am drinking too much. Nope. It was, oh, snap, I don't want people to see me drink how I want to drink. The exact same way that in the past, I didn't want people to see me eat how I wanted to eat because I didn't want to get yelled at in trouble, judged, etc. So that was basically the start of me drinking more in secret. And so at, from that point forward... I always matched other people's drinking. So if we were sitting at a table and we were hanging out for the night, whatever you drink, I would drink it. If you had one drink, I'd have one. If you got plastered, I was getting plastered right there with you, right? But what would always happen is once I would leave the social gathering, there was always that little pit stop at the liquor store on my way home so that I could finally drink how I wanted to drink. Now, this heavier drinking early on got pretty much like stopped um, because I got into a relationship with my then husband and he was a, he didn't have any addiction issues. So he didn't drink how I wanted to drink. And I obviously was not trying to have problems. So that kind of helped kept me in check for enough time for the years of our marriage. But even in our marriage, um, there was one incident where I did start drinking in secret because we were living in a fixer upper and I couldn't stand being in that mess. 
And so he would go to work and I would drink when he would go to work because I was on summer vacation from teaching. So it was like, you know, I would day drink. But then one day I accidentally drank too much and I blacked out. Well, I passed out, but it was also a blackout because I couldn't remember it. So FYI, passing out and blacking out are two different things, but they can both happen at the same time. And all I remember is that I woke up at the University of Louisville Hospital. By the way, we had moved to Kentucky at this point, which is where he was from. And um, that scared me enough to make me stop drinking for about a year. I mean, and I like joined AA at that time and I sore off alcohol for about a year because, you know, it scared me. It scared him. And it was so early on. It wasn't, yeah, it was early on enough in our, our marriage where um, I cared about keeping that marriage intact. And I knew that if I drank, it would basically be me saying I'm over this marriage. So for as long as I wanted to keep the marriage, keep the house, keep everything, I didn't drink. But that was the thing, right? I was not drinking for an external reason, not for an intrinsic reason. And so once I became unhappy with the marriage and I realized that I was okay with things if they fall apart and I was okay with letting go of this house if it had to go, right? I decided to start drinking again. And so after that, it was only a matter of time before we ended up splitting apart. And I mean, some other things were going on there too, but that's more his story. And I'll let him tell that someday if he ever chooses to on his own. But once we got divorced, I finally was like, woo, I can drink how I want to drink, right? Like going back to that theme. And when I got into my own apartment, that's where it really was on. And I want to say we got divorced. I think it was 2017. And by 2018, 2019, I was drinking a fifth a day of alcohol. And by the summer of 2019, I got diagnosed with alcoholic liver disease at the same time that all of this is happening, right? Because my drinking has escalated so much after the divorce. I also really dive into my career because if you all remember, since I was a kid, I always was um, priding myself on what I can do academically. And so as an adult, obviously I wasn't in school anymore, but I was working. So I always loved being a good teacher, but I was really like going above and beyond, right? Like staying late, doing all the things, and then treating myself by drinking to excess, blacking out, passing out, waking up at like three in the morning to get up, lesson plan, deal with the hangover, self-medicate, and then go back into school, right? Because in the mornings, what would start happening as I got sicker and sicker, I was going through really bad withdrawals. So I got a prescription for benzos to help me in the mornings so that I could go to work and function. And then once I got home and finished all my responsibilities, I scratched off my to-do list, then I would indulge. But our bodies can only take so much, right? Like the CDC states that heavy drinking for men is 15 drinks or more per week. And for women, heavy drinking in a week is considered eight drinks or more. If I was drinking a fifth a day, that means I was consuming 17 drinks per day when the limit for the week was eight. So that is just to give you a sense of how much I was stressing my liver, how much I was really, really hurting myself. So anyway, the other thing, like I was saying, is because I dove into my career and was doing such an excellent job, um, I did such a good job of teaching that at the peak of my alcohol addiction, while being diagnosed with alcoholic liver disease, well, I didn't know that at that time, but I won the State Teacher of the Year Award. Like I literally took the title home for the top teacher in the entire state of Kentucky 
for 2019. And I got to represent the state in the national competition for the National Teacher of the Year. And yes, this in the depths of alcohol use disorder. So if any of you are sitting there with your fancy career wondering, could I have a problem? Yes, you absolutely can have a problem. You don't have to be any kind of stereotype to have a problem. If you are consuming too much alcohol and you're questioning your relationship with alcohol, you probably need to address it, right? Like, let's be frank. So anyway, I won the Teacher of the Year Award, which brings me so much attention and really all this clout, but I'm drinking so much. And so you can imagine that on the inside, I really felt like my heart was being ripped apart. I mean, not only did I win this award, I won this award two weeks after my father passed away and a few days after learning that my then boyfriend after my divorce had also been cheating on me. I was like, dang, right? Like I I was not catching a break. The one break that I caught was the Teacher of the Year Award. But, you know, I will say, again, going back to the academics and going back to work, I do think that school saved my life. I do think that teaching was a part of saving my life because if I didn't have school and if I didn't have teaching in the depths of all of that addiction, I don't think that there's anything that I would have found worth living for. But I, every day I did find showing up and bringing smiles to those kids' faces was worth living for. But once the alcohol got to the point that it threatened my career, that's when I finally was like, okay, I need to do something about it. So by September of 2019, my liver disease was getting worse. And I was now starting to develop like actual, like straight up panic attacks where I could not get in my car at all or drive because I was like jumping or screaming at anything. Like I was starting to, I didn't hallucinate quite yet, but I feel like I was like a step away from starting to hallucinate. Like that's how bad the effects of the drinking were getting to be. So I was like, it sounds like I need to go to treatment. (laughs) I mean, I looked into like how to stop drinking on my own and I knew there was no way, there was no way that I could have safely stopped drinking. You cannot put a fifth of alcohol down your body every single day and then just put that to the side. Like you, you can't do that. So I did go into a treatment facility, but I went in telling everybody like, oh, I've got the flu and I'm going to be out for a few days. Like, don't call me. That's what I said. But in reality, I was detoxing and struggling a whole lot. Um, when I got out of that detox, I did go back into um, AA, but you know, I, I couldn't take it seriously enough. Like I wasn't willing to come out and tell people what I had been struggling with. You know, I was going to meetings and I had like a sponsor who I was sort of listening to, but my heart wasn't fully in it. I just wanted to be able to show up to work because A, I cared about work and B, I lived by myself and I had to make sure I could pay my bills. So I couldn't be missing work because of alcohol, but I wasn't really ready to transform my life. So because I wasn't ready, of course, you're whenever you're not really doing the work, right? You're setting yourself up to have slips and relapses, et cetera. So by the holidays, when the holidays came around, that's exactly what happened. Um, I felt really lonely and sad. And I started drinking again and I ended up in a treatment facility all over again. And this time my family found out because it was the holidays. So obviously they noticed that I was missing. And the other huge thing that happened while I was in that treatment facility was that I met Ian. And I remember when I walked into that treatment facility and I was doing my intake, I was drunk, but I do remember this. So it's a drunk memory that I actually have. 
Um, he was like in the common area. Treatment facilities have common areas, FYI, most of them do. And the TV was going and I look up and I see this beautiful man just sitting there like watching the TV. And he looked right at me and then he looked away and he like went back to looking at the TV. And I remember drunkenly being like, whoa, he's really cute. I need to not talk to him. That was literally my first thought. My first thought was don't talk to him. But of course, why would I listen to my instincts, right? Of course not. So I did avoid him for a couple of days, but probably at about like the third or fourth day, um, he sat next to me in one of the activities that we were doing. And he just starts asking me questions about myself. And he's like, where, where are you from? And um, I was like, oh, I am, I'm from New York. And, you know, he figured that I wasn't from Kentucky because you can hear my, in my accent. I do not have a Southern accent of any kind or Midwestern, whatever you want to call it. And so he was like, oh, what'd you do in New York? Did you model? And listen, y'all, like, that is such a cheesy line, but it worked, right? Because I was like, oh my gosh, ha ha ha. And um, yeah, we just hit it off after that. Like he, he said that and that opened the door to conversation. And by the time I left the facility then, um, and again, this was during winter break. So no one at school even noticed that I had gone missing, right? This, that's like the crazy shit about it. Um, but anyway, when I left the facility, I gave him my number and I was like, yeah, call me. And honestly, I didn't think that he would call. But a few days later, my phone rings and it's him. And he's like, yeah, like, do you want to go to a meeting together? And I was like, oh my gosh, of course. And so we went to this meeting together. And um, at the end of AA meetings, not, I mean, I'm not going to say all, but at the end of this meeting, there was a prayer and um, everybody got up and held hands. And, you know, this is before the pandemic too, right? So um, I remember putting my hand in his and it was just like this big, strong, muscular hand. You know, I mean, he's, he's a vet. And, um, you know, I just felt like my heart just like whew, flutter. And I was like, wow, you know. And um, yeah, we, we got into a relationship and everything was great. Of course, we got into a relationship against everyone else's advice, right? Like our sponsors were like, no, terrible idea. You shouldn't do it. You both are literally brand new to recovery. And of course we were like, you know, we don't care what you have to say <laughs> because, you know, um, little did I know that I, I really like learning lessons the hard way. And that's basically what happened there. And so, you know, we were off in this like beautiful la la land. Um, but then the pandemic hit and when the pandemic hit, and everything shut down, those church basements that we were having meetings in closed and the community centers closed and there was nowhere to go. Um, people were starting to use Zoom, but I wasn't aware of resources that existed the way that they do today. Like today there's platforms like the Luckiest Club, Tempest, um, Reframe, right? Like I work with the Luckiest Club. I work with Reframe. I had no idea those things existed back then. I mean, the Luckiest Club, I don't even think existed until May of 2020, right? So um, we had nothing. And we were taking time bombs for relapses or slips, whatever the word is that you like to use. And um, he was the first one to relapse. So it, it was funny because I had done like, I had like a fake Twitter account, like a fake sober Twitter account. And somehow 
this woman from NPR, Yuki Noguchi, um, I caught her eye with my tweets. So we did an interview and I was like talking about like my relationship and like how cheery and happy I was. And um, it's really eerie. And I'll put the link in the show notes to that interview because she met with me then. And then we did a follow-up like a year later. And this was after everything had happened. And, you know, like I told her and I updated her on everything that happened. And it was really heartbreaking. Um, But yeah, I did that first interview with her. And I was like, yeah, my boyfriend is great. We're going to go walk the dog, blah, blah, blah. Only to find that he didn't come back. And it was because he had relapsed um, on his drug of choice, which was opiates, um, specifically heroin. And so that day I found him, he was, he was alive and he was in his apartment and he was high. And it was so scary because he looked devastated at his choice and he was so embarrassed and so ashamed. And I tried to convince him to go to rehab, you know, like go back to treatment, like you need to go back. And he was finishing up his um, degree in social work at that time at, I think it's Sullivan University in Louisville. And he was like, no, I've, I've got to finish my work. And this man finished his work. He got everything done that he needed to submit for that semester. Um, I remember him working really hard through like the high and the withdrawal and he got, got it done. And then what happened after that was he used again and that was so difficult because I was like, if you're going to keep using, like, you're, you're not going to be able to stay here with me, you know, because I was like, I'm going to end up drinking again. And so he was like, okay, well, let me go to the gas station um, and then we'll talk about it. So he left to go to the gas station and this was on April 28th of 2020. And um, he just never came back, you all. He never came back. Um, I had called him, he wasn't answering and I had such a bad feeling as soon as he didn't answer. So I drove over to his apartment and I saw that his car was in the parking lot for the building. So I get into his building and I go up to his apartment door and I start banging on the door and he's not answering. And I call the phone and I hear it ringing from inside the apartment. So I'm like, he's in there, but he's not answering. So then I grab the fire hydrant just as like one of the neighbors slash people who works in the building comes out and I start slamming his door with the fire hydrant and the guy is like yelling at me to stop and that he's going to call the police on me. And I was like, go ahead, like, please do. So then of course, like I hear him on the phone and he's like, yeah, there's this tall black woman at the door, blah, blah, blah. And you know, this was shortly after Breonna Taylor had passed away and I was like, oh, great. But honestly, I was just so focused on trying to get into that apartment that I didn't care that he was calling the police. And I was, I welcomed it because again, we needed to get into that apartment. So the police come and, you know, he of course does open the door for them. And, um, content warning, you might want to mute this for a few minutes, but they open the door and they say, there's a dead male. And I immediately start screaming, screaming at that man. It's with PTSD. Um, I learned from reading The Body Keeps the Score, another great resource, that our memories get really, really pretty much fucked up. And so it's hard for me to remember the sequence with which everything happened. I just remember the bits and pieces. And so I remember, like, if I close my eyes, I can remember the police officer putting my hands behind my back and pushing me against the wall. Then it's like, it fades to black. 
then I can remember calling his mother and telling her that her son was dead, like fate's a black. Then I remember seeing her appear, fate's a black. And then I remember the coroner telling us that we could go into the apartment and see him before they rolled him away. And so I walk in and he's on the stretcher and, you know, I look around the room and I can see that there's blood splatter on the wall, you know, probably from him trying to like hit the, his vein with the needle. Um, I see like the belt on the floor and the syringe and he's just there, you know, and he was blue. He was so blue. And I touched his hair. He had really soft hair. I touched his hair and I said, bye. And the coroner took him away. His mom followed and I walked out and I got into my car and I went straight to the liquor store because I didn't have anywhere to go. I hadn't set up systems in place for real support. Um, I hadn't even really told my family that I was dating someone in recovery. You know, there was, there were so many things that I didn't do for myself that, so I, I had no place to land when life hit the fan. I had no place to land except at the bottom of the bottle. So I went to the liquor store and I got drunk. And honestly, from that point on, it was eight months of me on a bender. You know, I mean, there were car wrecks. I was in about seven to eight treatment facilities. You know, I was in hospital stays from like three days to like five days in the near ICU all the way up to like a five week um, stay at a residential facility. You know, it was like I had run through the gambit of interventions and I kept drinking. It was like, what the hell? Um, but I, I still wouldn't talk about what was going on, y'all. Like I was still... In between hospitalizations, I was showing up to work and trying to teach. And, you know, I kept trying to pretend that I could just move forward. But I was so heartbroken and I couldn't tell anybody why I was broken. Do you know how hard that is? That's really, really hard. And um, by November of 2020, I was staying here with my sister in Florida in the Tampa Bay area and I went down another spiral down the bottle and she called, um, I forget how I ended up in the hospital. So I don't know what she called or she took me, but point is in Florida, there's something called the Baker Act, which is if you are a risk to yourself or others that, um, you can be hospitalized in a psychiatric hold for 72 hours. So that's what happened. And once I was there and I finally like came to, I was like, oh my God, I'm so exhausted. So exhausted. I cannot keep going like this. This is not sustainable. Like it was like I was dying, but I wouldn't die, but there was also just no way to live. Right. So I was like, I I'm waving this white flag. Um, I, I give up. And by giving up, I mean like I give up resisting, not that I give up on trying. And so I gave up resisting, um, my addiction. And I, I finally was like, I will get help. I will, take medicine. I will talk about it. And so the biggest act of liberation that I did for myself was to break the stigma that I grew up in, right? Like coming from a family that we didn't talk about anything. I said, no, we're, we're talking about this. 
Um, and I wrote an op-ed for the Louisville Journal, Louisville Journal, the Louisville Courier Journal. I wrote an op-ed that came out. It went live on December 3rd, where I told the world back then I used the term alcoholic. I don't really use that term anymore, but basically I was like, hey, I'm your Kentucky State Teacher of the Year and I'm an alcoholic and these are all the things I've been going through in secret and I'm I'm done with it. I'm so over it. At the time that that was published, I barely had a week sober because my sobriety date is November 28th, 2020. And I wrote that piece around December 1st and it was published on December 3rd. So it was a really quick turnaround. Um, but that, it had to happen. I There was no other way that I could free myself from alcohol because it was so ingrained in everything that I was doing. And the shame was so powerful that the only way I felt that I could free myself was to just completely put myself out in the open where I knew that I was safest by being most vulnerable. I knew that I was safest by making myself incredibly vulnerable because no longer could anyone judge me if I put my story out there myself. So the narrative of my mom shaming me when I was little about what I wanted to eat to the time that that coworker embarrassed me at happy hour to the time that I was afraid of losing my marriage, like all of that was squashed when I wrote that piece and I published it in the Career Journal. And immediately after that, I resigned from classroom teaching. Um, I started working at a tutoring company instead so that I could really just focus on my recovery. Because again, I did really love teaching and there's no way that you can teach well in this country and practice perfect self-care, at least not me. If you all are, if you're a teacher and you're listening to this and you got it figured out, please email me so that we can talk about it. But um, I don't know how you can be a public school classroom teacher and truly take care of yourself and be balanced and do both things well. I don't have, I don't have that magic key. So I decided to let go of teaching so that I could take care of myself well. Um, and yeah, and initially in my journey, I was in 12-step programs and then Eventually, I realized that they didn't resonate with me. And when I ended up being a guest on Red Table Talk at about five months sober, and I met several sober women who were not in 12-step programs, I was like, whoa, so you can be alcohol-free and not go to AA? And they were like, yeah, like, look at us. And I was like, oh, snap. And so then I started to explore more and find, you know, find other communities to get involved in and find other ways to do self-development work, which essentially it's still... A lot of it is all the same, like 12-step work and a lot of the other work that you have to do to develop yourself. A lot of it um, has similar undercurrents, right? It's just a matter of just finding the space that you're comfy in. And so um, I eventually, I found my space and my journey started with medications. And then eventually I did a lot of self-assessment and work again with my therapist and psychiatrist to decide when it was good to let those go. And I eventually let those go. And yeah, ever since it's been, it's been quite a journey. Um, I feel like this episode really captures more of like my pre-recovery journey. And I should probably do another one at some point about life, like sober life. Um, Because honestly, that would be a whole other conversation. But yeah, I think that sums it up. I have been alcohol-free since November 28th of 2020. I don't regret any of it. 
I lost a lot as a result of alcohol, but honestly, I do feel like I stand to gain everything from the world. And um, I'm so grateful for people like my sister who never gave up on me, even when I wanted to give up on me. And for all the people who maybe had an inkling that I was suffering, but they didn't know to what extent. And so they just loved on me. So grateful for them too. And yeah, I just, I thank you for listening. Um, If you want to work with me, say on writing your own story, um, check out my website, bottomlesstosober.com. If you want one-to-one coaching to help you with breaking past whatever the hell's holding you back (laughs) from getting better, um, feel free to reach out, schedule a free consultation. Um, There's a lot of different fun things that I do. Most of the things that I offer are free or super low cost. And then, um, yeah, just like come, come hang, come connect. Thanks so much for listening and you have a great one.